Hi and welcome. This is Deacon Matt Newsom. I'm the Catholic Campus Minister at Western Carolina University. And this is episode three of our summer podcast series where we are looking at some of the different heresies that the church has had to deal with uh, throughout her history. Um, last week we looked at Gnosticism, which as a heresy actually predated the Christian faith, uh, having its roots in, in non-Christian religious thought, but it was a, a, a major force that the church had to deal with that largely became a heretical movement in the church, uh, even from apostolic times, uh, that the church really had to, to contend with from the very beginning um, and into the, the first and second and, and third and fourth centuries of, of the Christian era. Uh, today we're going to talk about Arianism, um, which is named after the priest Arius, and it was the first major Christological uh, heresy that the church had to face. Christology uh, referring to the study of Jesus Christ, and so Christological heresies were heresies that involved um, the, the question of who is Jesus, um, what is it that we believe about Jesus and his, his identity, his nature. Um, so today we are very blessed in the church to have a very definitive statement of faith uh, about uh, what we believe about Jesus, and that is the Nicene Creed, which um, every Catholic uh, should have memorized. We recite it together as a profession of faith uh, on Sundays uh, when we gather for our liturgy for the Mass. So I'm going to recite the Nicene Creed now. Uh, if you'd like, you're welcome to join along with me in saying it um, as a prayer, um, or just listen in along uh, as I recite the Nicene Creed. And I want you to uh, to listen particularly for the statements of faith that this creed professes, um, particularly about Jesus, um, in comparison to, to how much uh, the faith speaks about the Father and the Son. So here's the Nicene Creed. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. I believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God born of the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, consubstantial with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us men and for our salvation he came down from heaven, and by the Holy Spirit was incarnate of the Virgin Mary and became man. For our sake he was crucified under Pontius Pilate, he suffered death and was buried, and rose again on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son is adored and glorified, who has spoken through the prophets. I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. I confess one baptism for the forgiveness of sins, and I look forward to the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. All right, that is our creed. That is our faith that we that we profess. Um, we're all intimately familiar with that. Um, it it forms part of our liturgy. It forms the backbone of of Catholic education. Uh, the catechism. Uh, one of the four pillars of the catechism is is theology or the the study of God and. That whole section about what we believe as Catholics and the Catechism is structured around the creed. And so consequently, most of our educational programs in the, the Catholic Church are structured around this creed. Uh, the word creed itself, it comes from the Latin word credo, which is the first word of the creed in Latin. Credo, meaning I believe. 
And so the creed is a summary, it's a capsule summary of everything that we believe as essential to the Catholic faith. It's, it's a teaching tool. It's something that we as Christians can, can memorize, can take into our hearts, can, um, and can then meditate on and expound upon, right? It's simple enough to be memorized and readily uh, recited and understood, but it's deep enough to, to really bring us into these great mysteries about our faith and, and what we believe about God. There's actually more than one creed. They express the same faith, uh, but there are more, there's more than one formula of faith that the church has used uh, throughout her history. Uh, the Nicene Creed that I just recited, we're perhaps most familiar with from the liturgy. But of course, there's also the Apostles' Creed, which a lot of us know. Uh, we use it at the beginning of the Rosary. Uh, and then there's uh, the Athanasian Creed, which maybe we're not as familiar with, but it's another creed of, of the church. Um, creeds are, as I said, teaching tools that the church has given us at different points um, in, in her history to reaffirm and really uh, solidify what it is that we uh, are, are required to believe as Catholics, like the bare essentials of, of the Catholic faith. Um, so I, I mentioned at the beginning, you know, to look at exactly how much of this creed is devoted to our belief uh, in God the Son, right? Uh, we begin, uh, as we should, rightly so, with a statement of belief in God the Father, who is the Creator. Um, I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. So we acknowledge God and the Father in those four lines as the, you know, the first cause, the, the Creator of all things. Uh, we acknowledge our faith in the Holy Spirit, Towards the end, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son is adored and glorified, and who has spoken to the prophets. So again, four brief lines, but the Holy Spirit affirming our uh, belief in the Holy Spirit's divinity and that we worship him. Uh, but the bulk of that creed, everything in the middle, is about the person of Jesus, the second person of the Trinity. Uh, and it just affirms in such firm and... Um, direct and, and even repetitive sometimes language um, what it is that we believe about Christ as the divine Son of God united with the Father, right? That he is God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, consubstantial with the Father, and so on and so on and so on. You can add up all the, the words about um, our, our belief in the Father and all the words about our belief in the Holy Spirit, and they still don't even equal half of the, the words that we use to express our belief in God the Son. So have you ever wondered why that is? Have you ever noticed that, that the creed is mostly about Jesus? Why isn't it like, you know, equal, equal thirds, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Why is so much verbiage um, uh, used to express our, our faith in Christ? Well, it has to do with the, the origins of this particular creed um, as a response to the Arian heresy. Uh, so let's talk about that. Let's talk about the Arian heresy. Um, we're going to begin our story in the, the early part of the 4th century, the, the 300s. Um, and to give you some background information on the church at this time, um, Christianity now in the early 4th century is in ascendancy. It's, it's starting to rise. It's becoming um, more of a popular religion. It's not quite yet the majority religion of the Roman Empire, but it's growing. Um, for the first 300 years of its existence, the church had been a fugitive, right? 
uh, she was outlawed. She was, it was illegal to be, to be Christian in the Roman Empire. Different emperors would persecute the church with more or less vigor, um, but uh, in any case, being a Christian was always illegal, and there were times when the church was persecuted with great severity, and to even be a Christian, uh, to have yourself baptized, to be seen attending a, a Christian uh, liturgy, um, to be identified at all with the church, was to call down a death sentence on yourself. Times were very hard. Um, but that kind of severe persecution that the church endured for the first 300 years tended to keep the church really focused on the basics, right? There was very little time for internal disputes about the finer points of theology, right? The energy of the church was, was spent trying to survive and, even, even more importantly, trying to evangelize, trying to proclaim the gospel for as long as you were alive, even if, if the only way that you could proclaim that gospel was by your death. And so this was the, the time of the martyrs, right? the first 300 years of the church. And the church grew and it bloomed. It really, it really um, took root um, in, in the Roman Empire during this, this time. The persecution of the church ended when Constantine uh, took control of the Roman Empire. Uh, the Emperor Constantine uh, converted to Christianity, um, at least nominally. He wouldn't be baptized uh, until years, years later, closer to his death. But he converted nominally, at least, to Christianity after a, a victory, a military victory, that he attributed to the Christian God in the year 312. Uh, in the year 314, not long after, he issued the Edict of Milan, uh, sometimes people misunderstand what the Edict of Milan did. Uh, you'll, you'll hear it said sometimes that that made Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire. It did not. Um, but the Edict of Milan did make Christianity legal. And that's important because it had not been up until that point. So by making Christianity legal, Constantine just put it on, on the same level playing field with, with all of the other officially recognized um, religions of the empire. It was permitted now to, to be a public Christian. Um, and the fact that Constantine himself was a Christian also meant that not only was it safe and permissible to be a Christian in the Roman Empire, but it was becoming fashionable now to be a Christian in the Roman Empire. So, in any case, though, Christianity could be practiced publicly without fear of retribution, um, and that, you know, is kind of a mixed blessing. Um, it's a blessing and a curse. Uh, it's a blessing, obviously, because now the church is able to have a much more public presence in the world. Uh, the church is finally able to build churches and cathedrals, right, as, as beautiful buildings that would be permanent places of public worship. Um, the church was, was attracting a lot more converts now for whom it was easier to, to, become, to become Christian, right? The church was able to have more uh, of, a, of an influence, an, an overt influence in the public square. Uh, the bishops of the church were able to gather together to, to meet in larger numbers, to exercise their authority in a more public manner. All these things are very good. But the mixed blessing part is that, well, all those converts that you're now getting because Christianity is legal and fashionable, um, maybe they're not the same quality of converts as the church had in the past. I mean, in the past, when the church was being persecuted and it was, uh, you know, a, a death sentence to, to be Christian, if somebody said, hey, I want this, I want to be baptized, I want to become a member of the church, you knew that person was very sincere. Um, whereas now, if it's more of the fashionable thing, hey, the emperor is Christian, maybe I want to become Christian too, um, your, your sincerity and the dedication of the converts you know, tends to be a mixed bag uh, as a result. 
It's just the nature of things. Um, the other downside is not only you know are the bishops, the leaders of the church, able to have uh, more of a public influence um, in the world, but the leaders of the Roman Empire, the secular leaders, are able to have uh, exercise a lot more influence within the church, um, and that um, you know comes with its difficulties, as as we'll see uh, throughout the rest of this hour. Um, but one consequence of the ending of the persecutions and the relative peace that the church enjoyed as we enter into the 4th century is that it did allow the church to catch her breath, so to speak, and to participate in a more uh, serious way, in a more intentional way, in reflection upon a lot of theological issues that had just not been at the forefront of debate in the past. I mean, they were there. They were they were things that theologians and and the great saints had thought about and had written about, but they just weren't a matter for a large scale public debate during times of persecution. But these were serious issues. They were worthy of consideration. Uh, they they touched on uh, the uh, the fundamental um, uh, teachings of the church, and so um, you know. And so now that people weren't having to constantly look over their shoulder for when the Roman centurions were going to arrive, um, the church was able to have some public debates about these issues. And the major issue, the major issue that was uh, uh, the subject of discussion and debate in the beginning of the fourth century was this. Who is Jesus Christ? What is it that we believe about his identity and his nature? Right? Jesus Christ is the Son of God. What does that mean? And that's a question that's still very relevant today. I mean, people today attempt to redefine Jesus on their own terms, uh, to, to create Jesus in their image. Um, some people say that Jesus is a myth. Some people say, oh, he was a man, he was a great teacher, he was a great moral leader, but, but nothing really more than that. Um, you know, people seem to be, give, uh, be willing to give Jesus all manner of accolades and praise um, for everything that he would do as a man and as a religious leader, as a spiritual uh, master, but, but not God. Um, the, the way that Christians, you know, treat Jesus as God is just going too far. So they attempt to, to define Jesus, like I said, on their own terms. Um, and it's just this question, was Jesus in fact divine? Was he God? That was being debated here in the, the early fourth century, right? Um, so one of the, the, the more famous people in this debate who would lend his name to this heresy um, is, is Arius. Arius um, was, uh, was a priest in the Catholic Church. Um, he was actually from Libya, um, but he um, was a priest in Alexandria in, in Egypt. Um, a little background here. He was educated at the theological school in Antioch. And then he served as a priest in Alexandria. And the reason why that's important is that Antioch and Alexandria, those two cities, they represented the, the two primary theological schools at that time. And like still happens today, there was a major rivalry that existed between those two schools, right? Not over football, but, but over theology, uh, as it were. And that's going to come into play as the Arian heresy kind of grows and develops, this rivalry between the schools at Antioch and the schools in Alexandria, 
right? So Arius was this priest who had been trained in Antioch. That's where he went to, to, to school. That's where he received his Christian education. But he was serving in ministry in Alexandria. All right. And in the years 318 and in going into 319, he gives a series of sermons that deal with this question of the relationship of Jesus, the Logos, the Word of God, with God the Father. What is the relationship between those two? Okay, he talks about this in a series of sermons. And word of this gets you know, uh, brought to the attention of the Bishop of Alexandria, which would be Arius' bishop, uh, whose name was Alexander. So it's easy to remember, Bishop Alexander is the Bishop of Alexandria. Um, and Bishop Alexander thought that, you know, this topic is worthy of a broader discussion. Let's get people together in the church and let's talk about this. Um, so he held a meeting in the year 319, and he invited Arius to come and present his theological views on, on this Christological question. And he invited other people to come, too, and kind of present their, their theories. And what Arius was teaching was this. This was Arius' um, uh, way of, of talking about Jesus. He said that Jesus was the Son of God, right? Jesus is the Son of God, but as the Son of God, he was a created being. And, it, you know, his line of thinking kind of makes sense if you think about it. He's begotten of God the Father, and that means that God the Father made Jesus. It means that he is created by God the Father. Uh, that means that there was a time when the Son of God didn't exist, when God the Father was just God by himself, and and then at a certain time he begat a son. He made a son. And so therefore Jesus is a creature. He's, he's made by God. So he can't be God himself. He's a creature made by God. Now Arius held that Jesus was the greatest of all of God's creatures. He was the highest creature, highest being in creation. He was willing to give Jesus almost every divine attribute, just not divinity itself, right? Jesus was the greatest of all of God's creatures, but he was not God. Now, there are Christians that still believe this today, and you'll, you'll note this as we go through all of these heresies. These ideas don't go away. They're still out there. I think it's important for us to, to be able to know historically where these ideas came from so that we can recognize them uh, when we encounter them today. There are Christians today, Catholics in the pews even, and that's their view that they think about Jesus, that he's the greatest creature made by God, but that he's not the same as God. Um, well, this is what Arius taught, that he was the greatest creature made by God, but not the same as God. Now, those on the other side of this debate, what they argued was that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was also God. That as the Son of God, Jesus shares in that same divine nature with God the Father. So God the Father is God, God the Son is God. They're both somehow God. The problem is, how do you explain that? What, what language do you use to define what it is that you mean? Because right? we don't believe in two gods. We believe in one God. But that one God is, is somehow existing as both God the Father and, and God the Son, as well as the Holy Spirit. But the debate right now is just what's this relationship between God the Father and God the Son. And keep in mind, this is before we had that Nicene Creed. That Nicene Creed that we recited at the beginning of this hour didn't exist yet. So we didn't have the phrase, 
you know, begotten, not made, consubstantial with the Father that we recite every Sunday. That 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 phraseology didn't exist. It wasn't something that people were familiar with. So those that opposed Arius here, you know, they they're arguing for the fact that Jesus is one in being or consubstantial with the Father. That, they, that Jesus and the Father are the same in all things, uh, except in their relationship to one another. But they both share the same Godhead, the same divinity, right? But they didn't have the language yet, the theological language yet, to, to definitively express that in a very clear way. Um, and so this debate about Christology, this debate about the nature of, of Jesus Christ, it really was a debate about the Trinity. How are these three persons in the Trinity that we believe to be one God, how how do they relate to one another? Okay. Now, at this time, in the year you know, 319, this this whole debate is taking place within the context of the church. There's no heresy yet at this time. These were theologians within the church, members of the clergy, discussing a theological issue of great importance, where the church had as yet no definitive teaching. This was a discussion towards a definition. And so nobody's accusing anybody of heresy. They're just having a, a discussion about what do we believe about Jesus and how do we express that in precise language. So this debate took place in, in the Diocese of Alexandria. And um, at the end, Bishop Alexander accepted as bishop and head of the church in Alexandria, he accepted the arguments of those who opposed Arius. He accepted the arguments of those who said, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is God. Right? He shares in that same divinity as the Father. And so he instructed Arius, as his bishop, he instructed Arius, do not teach your views any longer. You are forbidden from teaching that Jesus Christ is a creature made by God. Well, Arius refused to obey his bishop. He continued to teach that Jesus was a creature made by God. This is when Arius enters into formal heresy now, because he is obstinately denying the authority of the church as expressed by his bishop, and he's teaching a theological error. And so, having to, you know, uh, or, or denying the, the orders of his bishop, um, Bishop Alexander has to. Um, uh, has to react, and so he excommunicates Arius. Uh, excommunication is a very severe um, penalty uh, within the church. It literally means you are no longer in communion with the church, which means you're no longer in communion with the body of Christ, with, with God. You're cut off from the sacraments. You can't participate in the sacraments. The reason for doing this is twofold. It's, one, it's meant to be you know, remedial for the person being excommunicated. It's meant to, um, to bring that person to repentance so that they will you know, no longer do the thing that, got, uh, that, that they were excommunicated for so that they can repent and come back into communion with the church. But it's also done for the protection of others in cases like this, where the one being excommunicated is a prominent public leader within the church. Um, by excommunicating Arius, Bishop Alexander is sending a very clear signal to the faithful. Do not listen to the teachings of this man. This man is teaching without authority. He is, is teaching something that is not in line with the apostolic faith. So don't, don't be taken in. Um, this is not true Christian teaching. So Bishop Alexander excommunicated Arius. Um, 
Arius was not the only one who was preaching this idea, by the way. He's probably didn't, isn't even the one who, who created this idea, this idea that Jesus is a created being. Um, but Arius became its most famous proponent. That's why we use his name for this heresy, Arianism. Um, so Arius is excommunicated at this point. Um, and what he does next is he contacts an, an old friend of his from seminary, uh, a friend of his from school in, in Antioch, who is now the Bishop of Nicomedia um, in modern-day Turkey, and it's Bishop Eusebius. Uh, Bishop Eusebius um, uh, also shared in Arius's opinion that Christ was a creature made by God. And so by reaching out to his fellow classmate and his, um, this other bishop outside of his diocese who shares in his view, um, Arius is attempting to garner support for his position um, outside of his own diocese of Alexandria. So the bishop of Alexandria, um, Alexander, he you know, sees what Arius is doing and he responds. He calls a synod of all the bishops of Egypt together and they meet, and they affirm with one voice the excommunication of Arius. You know, kind of saying, reminding everyone else, hey, this guy is excommunicated, and there's a reason why, and we all agree with his excommunication. Um, and then they extended that excommunication to everyone who would follow Arius. Not just Arius, but Arius and all of his followers, all those who share in his, his view that Jesus was a creature made by God. And then they communicated that decision to all the other bishops in the church, even those outside of Egypt, including the Bishop of Rome. So they've made it known far and wide. Arius is excommunicated and he's, he's guilty of teaching this heresy. Now, a lot of the bishops in the church, especially those who were allied to the Antiochian school, resisted this decision. Not purely because they disagreed with it on theological terms, but because of where it came from, because it originated from Alexandria. Who are these bishops in Egypt? Who is this bishop of Alexandria to think he can tell us what we should or shouldn't do about this priest, Arius? We're free to make our own decisions, right? So people in the church, bishops, priests, deacons, even lay people in the church, started to take sides over this matter, not necessarily based on their theological opinions, but based on whether they were affiliated with the school in Antioch or the school in Alexandria, which, like I said, were the two most prominent theological schools of the time. So just about every clergyman was either educated in Alexandria or educated in Antioch. So it, it split the church down the middle, depending on which you know, theological school they, they attended. So Antioch was associated with, with Arius and his followers, and, and Alexandria was associated with you know, these Egyptian bishops who said, no, Arius is teaching heresy. So as I mentioned now, you know, Constantine, the emperor, was, uh, was a Christian, and so this division that was growing within the church did not escape his notice. Um, and he wrote a letter to, to Bishop Alexander uh, suggesting that, you know, you should really try and reconcile with Arius and settle your differences because, you know, this stuff's not all that important and it's causing a lot of division within the church uh, that I don't like. So, you know, it kind of shows how undeveloped 
um, Constantine's theological understanding was to say that this you know, debate over whether or not Jesus is a creature or Jesus is God is not really important <laughs> to the Christian faith. Um, but it also shows that Constantine feels very comfortable in um, interfering in ecclesial matters. And, and by doing so, he's you know, he's just acting the way that Roman emperors have acted for centuries. Under the old pagan system, the emperor was considered to be the religious head of state. Um, and now that Constantine considered himself a Christian, he just naturally assumed that he could exercise a leadership role in the Christian church, um, as he, you know, emperors before him had done in, in the pagan religion. You know, he's he's the emperor. He can do whatever he wants to do. Um, but uh, but as I said, his his theological understanding is 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 um, wanting to say the least. Um, so the church continue, uh, continued to have issues with this. The the divisions in the church continued to to spread, and um, and they did not get better. And so Constantine decided eventually, the way to handle this is let's get all the bishops together in a council, a universal council. The word for that is ecumenical, right? Ecumenical, a universal council to just decide this issue once and for all. And so the bishops did that. They came together at the request of Constantine. And what happened was the first ecumenical council of Nicaea in the year 325. Nicaea is a town in, in modern-day Turkey. Uh, Constantine had a palace there, so they all, he summoned all the bishops to this palace in Nicaea. Um, it was attended by mostly bishops from the eastern part of the church, but a few bishops from the west came, including um, not the pope himself, the bishop of Rome, but a representative of the popes, a papal legate, came to the council and participated and affirmed the, uh, the decisions of the council. And this is important, right, because in ecumenical councils that happen in more modern times, you know, we understand that the Pope is the only one that has authority to call an ecumenical council. And the Pope has to ratify, um, you know, any, any proceedings of an ecumenical council. Um, but at the time, again, this was the very first one, that precedent had not yet been established. And Constantine, as the emperor, um, certainly felt that it was within his right as the, the leader of, of the empire um, you know, and as leader of the empire, he was universal leader of the empire. Uh, they didn't have like a division of church and state like we did today. There was no, no matter within the empire, nothing that happened within his empire that uh, was not subject to his authority. So he certainly felt that it was within his right to, to call uh, a council. And, uh, but the Pope did send a representative. The Pope did make sure that there was a papal legate there to, to receive uh, and to ratify the decisions of the council. So we, as, as Christians, do recognize that as, as a legitimate ecumenical council. So the council met, and it was, this was the first time that uh, such a significant number of bishops from both East and West had gathered together. And so they talked about things other than the Arian heresy while they were there. One of the major issues that they discussed was how are we going to figure out the date of Easter? You've probably noticed that Easter is not on the same day every year. Um, it's not like Christmas. It's always on December 25th. Easter kind of floats around the calendar in the spring. It's always on a Sunday, but the particular day on the calendar is different every year. And the reason is that um, the date for Easter is tied to the date for the Jewish Passover. 
Um, and, and that date is, um, it floats around the calendar um, every year. It's, it's determined by um, the, um, the, the phases of the moon and when the spring equinox is and so forth. Um, so the church wants to celebrate Easter at Passover, but the church also wants to celebrate Easter on a Sunday because Easter is the principal feast of the Lord's resurrection and Sunday is a day of the resurrection. So, okay, if we're going to celebrate Easter on Passover, if we're going to celebrate Easter on a Sunday, how do we calculate things and, and make sure that, that we're all throughout the church celebrating Easter at the same time? Because that was of principal importance. We can't, Easter is such an important feast. It's the major feast of the church year. We can't have different, you know, different bishops in the church celebrating Easter on different days. We want to all celebrate Easter together. So they discussed that at Nicaea, and they came up with a formula that we use to determine when Easter is, uh, is going to be celebrated. Um, so they talked about different things. But the major thing that they talked about was this Arian controversy, and how are we going to resolve that? All right. And the, the major achievement of this council is the formulation of what we know today as the Nicene Creed. Um, not in its final form, but but in the bulk of it is is what um, what we know as the Nicene Creed came from this council. And here is your word of the day. Okay, this was the word that everything kind of hung on. It's a Greek word, homoousios. Homoousios. That's the Greek word that we translate as as consubstantial. Right. The Latin equivalent of that word is consubstantialem. Right. It means of the same being, one in being, the same substance. So homoousios, H-O-M-O-O-U-S-I-O-S, from homo meaning same, and ousios, or being, right, the same being. We believe that Jesus is the same being of the same substance as the Father, right? So the council fathers at Nicaea used that word, that Greek word, to mean that the three persons of the Trinity were one in being with the others. In other words, there's only one God. There is only one God, even though we believe that that God exists as a Trinity of persons, right? But that Trinity of persons is, is one God because those three persons share the same being. So the Greek word homoousios, as I said in Latin, was consubstantialum, right? Consubstantialum. It literally means with the same substance. You see our English word substantial there. Substantialum. Consubstantialum. And so the Latin fathers, the Western fathers at the council, were using that word consubstantialum, while the, the Eastern fathers in Greek were using the word homoousios. And this is one of the first instances where language kind of becomes a problem within the church uh, when we're talking about these finer details of theology. Because even though the Latin fathers were using consubstantialum as the equivalent of the Greek word homoousios, right, for one in being, right, the Greeks actually had a different word for substance. Ousios means being in Greek, but for substance, they use the word hypostasis. Um, and there's evidence from the fourth century that those two words, hypostasis and, and ousios, were used kind of interchangeably, right, to refer to the same basic idea. But but the fact that there were two terms at all suggests to us that there were there was at least a difference in nuance of meaning that um, that existed in the Greek language that the Latin speakers at the council didn't have. Um, the difference between substance and being 
that's a very fine point. It's a very subtle point. But that's the kind of thing that the council fathers at Nicaea were debating uh, because they were attempting to define what we believe about Jesus in very precise language so that the church could teach very clearly on this point about just who is Jesus Christ and what is his relationship with God the Father. Precision was very important uh, because this is a fundamental issue of the faith on which there, there can be no disagreement within the church. So the end result was the adoption of a creed that held that Jesus Christ was, was consubstantial, or one in being, with the Father. Homoousios in Greek, or consubstantialum in Latin. The council agreed. Right? Arianism was condemned in no uncertain terms. Um, Constantine, the emperor, he accepted the, the Nicene position, the, the Nicene creed. Um, so you have the church in agreement um, against Arianism. You had the, the emperor uh, in agreement against Arianism. So end of story, right? You would think. But the story does not end here. In fact, you know, in, in a lot of ways, the story of Arianism is only beginning. Um, ideas are pretty hard to kill, and the fact that um, heresy is a bad idea doesn't make it any harder to, uh, or any easier to, to kill. So, Arianism still had a lot of sympathizers out there. The fact that an ecumenical council has decreed against them, that didn't stop them from espousing their position. It, it, you know, this was the first ecumenical council. So today we have a long tradition of ecumenical councils, and we know, because it's a teaching of our faith, that ecumenical councils um, you know, carry uh, divine authority, and they're one of the, the, um, you know, the strongest means that the church has of exercising her authority given to her by God to teach. Um, and that ecumenical councils even have the charism of infallibility when they're, they're teaching in matters uh, relating to faith and morals. But this is all um, uh, an understanding of doctrine that's developed over time as a church has, has grown. Um, this was the very first ecumenical council, and so there certainly wasn't a developed theology of, uh, of, of you know, what weight these councils had in terms of their authority. So there were a lot of people who thought that, uh, you know, who thought nothing of disagreeing with the council. So before the year 325 was even over, two of the bishops who had been there at Nicaea, um, one of whom was Eusebius, um, who was one of Arius's early supporters, decided to withdraw their support of the conciliar decrees. They, they withdrew their support of the Nicene Statement of Faith. Um, Constantine the Emperor um, responded by exiling them to Gaul, to what's now known as France, right, in Europe. Um, so, they voiced their, their opposition to Nicaea, Constantine exiled them. But a few years later, their fortunes changed. Constantine apparently had a change of heart about this, and he recalled them from exile. Um, he asked them to sign a, a kind of a vague confession of faith, which could be interpreted either way, either as, as pro-Nicene or anti-Nicene. You know, it was kind of vague on that. Um, and, and restored them to their, to their diocese. Why Constantine changes his mind is, is kind of uncertain. He had a, a half-sister that lived in Nicomedia, where Bishop Eusebius was bishop. Maybe she was able to convince him to be lenient with the bishop. 
we don't really know. But whatever the case, these bishops apparently now had the support of the emperor, or at least kind of a tacit agreement that he wasn't going to bother them. And so the Arians um, felt free to have a bit more of an aggressive stance on the the Nicene party, right? The the formula of the faith that was expressed and agreed upon by the bishops at Nicaea. But what's interesting is what they do at this time isn't they don't renew the theological debates. They they don't start arguing against the the theology expressed in the Nicene Creed. What they do instead is they start attacking the bishops. They start attacking, uh, making accusations against them and making these ad hominem attacks against their character. Um, so one of the greatest defenders of the Orthodox position, um, one of the greatest defenders of the Nicene Creed, the faith of the Nicene Creed, at this time was St. Athanasius. Um, St. Athanasius was, um, he was at the Council of Nicaea. He was a deacon at the council. Um, and he was Bishop Alexander's personal secretary during the council. So he participated um, greatly in the council. And tradition actually credits him as being the one who came up with the homoousios formula, that word, who proposed that word to, to describe the relationship between God the Son and God the Father. Um, Bishop Alexander died shortly after Nicaea, and St. Athanasius was, um, uh, was selected as the new Bishop of Alexandria because he was held in such high esteem. And so he kind of took on the mantle that Bishop Alexander had of defending the, the orthodoxy of the faith. Um, and because of his staunch support for the decrees of Nicaea, he was like the primary target of the Arian supporters. And so they started to make all kinds of ad hominem attacks against him. They accused him of being unduly harsh and, and just too severe towards members of his diocese. Um, he, they even claimed that he was intentionally withholding um, grain shipments that were, were going from Alexandria to Constantinople to kind of punish those, those other Christians in the East that, you know, that, would, uh, that would disagree with him. Um, so they were, they were just accusing him of all kinds of horrible things. And the Arian bishops would actually start to get together and have synods for the purpose of deposing bishops from other dioceses who supported Nicaea. Now, you know, ordinarily they wouldn't be able to really do anything about that, right? I mean, you could, it would be like the bishops of, you know, Charlotte and, and Raleigh and uh, Charleston uh, getting together and voting to um, depose the Bishop of Orlando. It's like, well, they can do it, but they have, <laughs> it doesn't mean anything. Um, except that the Arian bishops had the support at this time of the Roman army. And it's interesting how that, that happened. We, we don't really know for sure, um, but some historians have suggested that because the Roman army at this point in time was made up largely of recruits from the so-called barbarian lands um, uh, of Europe, principally around Germany, um, and because those areas had just recently been um, been uh, been evangelized. Um, the missionaries that had gone into those territories just happened to be 
Arian Christians. They were preaching an Arian version of the Christian faith. So that's the Christian faith that a lot of these um, people that would later on go and serve in the Roman army had been initiated into. So the Arian bishops had the support of the Roman army. And in the Roman Empire at this time, that was everything. The Roman Empire was a military empire. Constantine had won his crown by military conquest. Um, the, the decrees of the emperor were carried out and enforced by the army. The way that, that politicians advanced in a political society was through the ranks of the army. So the, Ro- the Roman army was the Roman government. Um, you know, it wasn't a branch of the government or a segment. It was, it was the government. And the army, historically, was Arian. They were Arian. So these bishops would vote to depose other bishops that, that uh, supported Nicaea, and then they would have their wishes carried out by the army. Right? So they, they found it relatively easy to enforce their will. There were some dozen Orthodox bishops that were deposed between 326 and 335. Um, including Athanasius himself, was, um, was deposed from, uh, from his see in Alexandria. Um, and here and throughout you know, the rest of the series, when I'm using the word orthodox, I'm, I'm using it uh, to mean just right thinking as opposed to heterodox. Heterodox, heretical, wrong thinking. Orthodox meaning right thinking. Those that hold the, the true apostolic Christian faith against the, the, the errors of, of, of the heretics. Uh, not orthodox with a capital O referring to the, the Eastern Christians that are not in union with, uh, with Rome. Uh, that division didn't exist at this time. That division didn't exist until some centuries later. So uh, just keep that in mind when I use that term, orthodox bishops. Those bishops who were not uh, supporters of the Arian heresy. Um, so there were orthodox bishops being deposed, including Athanasius himself. Um, and, and this became the issue of the day throughout the Roman Empire, right? Everybody had an opinion about it. Everybody had a, a say in, you know, in this. Just like today, people will express opinions about, oh, what we should do about immigration reform, or what should we do about health care, and everybody has an, you know, an opinion about this, and, and everyone's talking about it. Um, in the 4th century, in the Roman Empire, it was Arianism versus, you know, the, the Nicene uh, bishops. You know, which side are you on? Um, it, was, uh, it was just the issue of the day. So, rather than settle the issue with the Council of Nicaea in 325, in, in a lot of ways, that just kind of solidified the sides that people were on, and uh, that division just became worse and worse and worse as the years went on. In the year 337, the Emperor Constantine died. He had three sons. He divided the empire among his three sons, one of which died three years later. So from 340 on, there were two Roman emperors. Um, There was Constans in the west, and there was um, Constantius uh, in the east. Um, Constans was supportive of the Nicene party, right, the Orthodox faith. Um, Constantius was uh, supportive of the Arians. Um, and so when he began his reign, he was, he was a little bit more supportive of the Nicene Christians than, than his father had been um, at the time of his death. But when he began his reign, he, he allowed Athanasius and other exiled bishops to, to return to their, to their diocese. But of course, the Arian bishops had set up 
other Arian bishops in place in those dioceses while they were in exile. That was the whole point of exiling them, so that they could get their own bishops in place there. So even though Constantius allowed those bishops to come back to their dioceses, um, it just resulted in, in power struggles and questions about, well, who's the legitimate bishop of this diocese? So it didn't really do them any favors. Um, but when Athanasius returned to his diocese, Alexandria, in the year, in that, in the year 337, he called a synod of all the Egyptian bishops together to confirm that he is the lawful bishop. You know, so for that reason, he's able to show that he has the support of all of the neighboring bishops in Egypt, that he is a lawful bishop of Alexandria. Um, but that didn't last too long. In 339, he was again forced into exile when the Arian bishop that had been put in place in Alexandria, um, his name was Gregory, um, he marched into the city with a military escort. As I said, they had the, the support of the army. So Athanasius um, was exiled again. Um, he appealed to, uh, to Pope Julius. Um, he went to Rome. He appealed to the Pope, Pope Julius. Uh, Pope Julius convened a Roman synod, a gathering of the bishops there in Rome. Um, and they also confirmed that Athanasius was, in fact, a legitimate bishop of Alexandria. But there was really little they could do about it to actually enforce that uh, because the Arians had the military support. So Athanasius couldn't return to Alexandria. He, he stayed in Rome. Um, continuing to do what he could from Rome to combat the Arian heresy. So, you have two emperors now at this time. Um, they were interested in religious unity. Like, they didn't like the status quo of having these this divided faction within the church. So, the emperors started to, especially in the East, they would suggest um, different compromise formulas that in an attempt to settle this matter. Hey, can't we just agree on, on, on a different statement of faith? Can we find some way of talking about Jesus that everybody can agree on? And they all represented a compromise from the very definitive statements at the Council of Nicaea. Um, and nobody really was in favor of, 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 of most of these. But um, because the Orthodox bishops... They didn't want to back down from their very clear statement of faith that uh, the Council of Nicaea had agreed upon. Um, they didn't want to accept anything less than the truth. Um, their whole point in, in doing this was to achieve clarity uh, and to teach the truth. Um, so, in the year 346, um, the Arian Bishop of Alexandria, uh, uh, Gregory, uh, died and uh, Constantius invited Athanasius to return to Alexandria, which he was able to do. Um, in the year 350, Constans um, in, in the west was, was killed by an usurper to the throne, and Constantius um, uh, avenged his brother by killing the usurper, and that made Constantius the sole emperor of both the east and the west. And since Constantius generally favored the Arians, the Arian party um, really took advantage of the situation. Um, the first thing that they did was they attempted once again to silence and disgrace Athan Athanasius, St. Athanasius. Um, pope Julius died in the year 353. The new pope, Liberius, um, asked Constantius uh, to convene a synod um, with the idea of rejecting the Arian accusations against Athanasius. 
Um, these were all, like I said, ad hominem attacks, just talking about how bad a dude Athanasius was. Um, and so Pope Liberius um, convened a synod um, in, uh, in Arles in modern-day France. Um, and the only topic that this synod was to discuss was the deposition of Athanasius. But the emperor was able to put pressure on the bishops that were there uh, to have them agree that Athanasius should be deposed. Now, that's not the outcome that the Pope expected. And so, in 355, he called a council to meet at Milan and, you know, to talk about the same thing. And, again, imperial pressure was put on the bishops to confirm Athanasius's exile. So, the Pope refused to accept the proceedings of that council. And so, it's not recognized as an ecumenical council. It didn't have papal approval. The Pope just refused to, to accept the, the proceedings from that council. And um, so the Emperor um, responded by exiling the Pope and all the bishops that supported the Pope. Sent them into exile. So it's kind of an impossible, impossible situation right now, especially for Athanasius. He can't remain in Alexandria. His life is in danger. So he goes into kind of a self-imposed exile, um, this time to go, not to go to Rome, because he's not really welcome in Rome either. Um, the emperor is against him. So he goes to the desert in Egypt, and he lives among the desert hermits there. Um, and uh, he actually does a lot of great work there. Um, you know, history remembers him for his opposition to the Arian heresy, but one of his great achievements is the biography that he wrote of St. Anthony, um, the great desert father, and his promotion of the monastic way of, of life overall. So he's, um, he's, he's really very famous for that as well, in addition to his work against the Arian heresy. So Athanasius was now in the desert, in the Egyptian desert, with, uh, with the monastic fathers. Um, Constantius, um, the emperor, uh, is attempting to unite the faith uh, again. Um, he has an interesting idea uh, at this point. He wants to hold a double synod. He wants to have two synods of bishops held simultaneously, one in the east and one in the, the west. It's kind of a curious arrangement. He wanted the Western bishops to meet in Rimini in Italy, and he wanted the Eastern bishops to meet at Seleucia um, in modern-day Turkey. Um, and the purported reason for this was, well, it was too hard for the bishops to travel. This would make it easier for them. But the strategic reason was that it was mostly the Western bishops who remained loyal to the, the, the Nicene Creed, the, the proceedings of the Council of Nicaea. Um, the Eastern bishops were much more friendly to um, to Arianism. And so by having them meet separately, this would allow the Eastern bishops to, um, to meet without any pressure from the Western bishops, and it would also kind of allow the, the emperor to focus his political and military influence on the Western bishops, because he really didn't have to worry about the support of the Eastern bishops. So, at this point, this whole debate really was more political than theological, you have to understand. Arius was dead by this time. Um, Eusebius, the, the, his primary bishop supporter, was dead by this time. Um, the church had already debated the theological merits of this argument, and they decided firmly against Arianism at the Council of Nicaea. 
they formulated a creed that was accepted by the bishops at the Ecumenical Council of Nicaea. So it was really difficult for people to you know, radically oppose the theology that Nicaea expressed with any real merit. So this had become more of an issue of, of imperial politics, who was in favor with whom, um, and you know, and that's that's why you see things like the Western bishops, um, you know, that the Pope called a synod of uh, in Milan, um, agreeing with the emperor to depose Athanasius, even though they remain loyal to his creed. They remain loyal to the Nicene Creed. They didn't become Arians. They just agreed that, yeah, it's politically expedient to, to do what the emperor wants to do and depose Athanasius. So this was really more of a political issue um, at this point. So all that the political parties were involved or were interested in was just, let's just compromise. Let's just compromise, um, you know, so that we can all get along and reunite um, but of course, the people, the bishops who had a real theological um, uh, stake in this, you know, didn't want to compromise on points of theology, especially as important as the, you know, Christology. Who is Jesus Christ? You don't compromise on that question of who is Jesus Christ when you're a sincere Christian. Uh, but compromise was what um, was was what the the emperor wanted, um, and so at this double synod. Um, the Arian party, the, the supporters of Arianism, they proposed, you know, they had proposed a lot of different compromise formulas um, that were intended to be agreeable to both parties. Um, most of them ended up not satisfying anybody. But at this double synod, there were three. There were three primary formulas that they put out for consideration that... Um, as far as how are we going to define the relationship between the Father and the Son. So one uh, compromise formula was that, let's say the Son is unlike the Father. And that was expressed with the Greek word anomoios, unlike the Father. Um, and that statement actually went far beyond what Arius actually taught. Um, you know, and that, that idea didn't have a lot of support. Um, the second uh, proposed formula was much closer to the Nicene formula, and that is that the Son was like in being with the Father. Not one in being, but like in being with the Father. And that was expressed by the Greek word homoiousios. Okay? Homoiousios, and that's spelled H-O-M-O-I-O-U-S-I-O-S. So the only difference between homoousios, which is in the Nicene Creed, one in being, and homoiousios is that one letter I, or in Greek, iota. So there was literally just one iota of difference between homoousios and homoiousios. Is Jesus the same substance, the same being as, as God, or is he merely like in being with God? It sounds very similar. Like I said, one iota of difference, but that's a very important iota. That's actually where that phrase comes from, one iota of difference. It comes from this, this debate. And that formula was almost accepted, almost accepted. The, um, there were many bishops who, who supported the Nicene statement, including St. Athanasius himself, who were willing to adopt the homoiousios formula as long as the phrase 
in all things was added to it. So that it would say that the Son was like the Father in all things. Um, but that was rejected, um, and uh, large, the Arians wouldn't accept that because they said that made it too close to the theology expressed by Nicaea that, that they couldn't accept. Um, and I said there were three proposals. The third one was just to say that the Son was like the Father, right? Not like in being with the Father, but just simply like the Father. And that was expressed by the Greek word homoios. Um, and the emperor himself um, favored that position. He was convinced that that was the best compromise because it didn't talk about being at all. It, it avoided the whole question of usios, of, of being. And it just said the son was like the father. And it doesn't say anything about, you know, is he of the same being or of a different being? Or it just kind of ignores that question. Um, and that was kind of a common tactic of the Arians at this point. Let's not deny Let's just avoid. Let's just avoid talking about it. Let's not define the whether or not Jesus is one in being with the Father or not. So there were 400 bishops, uh, approximately, gathered in the Western Synod at uh, at Rimini, and of those 400, all but 80 of them, okay, so about 320, reaffirmed their reaffirmed their support for the the phrase homoousios of Nicaea, that Jesus is one in being, is consubstantial with the Father. Eighty of them, eighty of them um, adopted one of these other um, statements. Um, both the parties, though, both the, the Homoousios party and the Arian party sent representatives to the emperor to um, communicate um, their decision. And since the emperor himself was Arian, he just refused to meet with the legates of the Nicene party, the Nicene supporters, and instead he welcomed the Arian legates. Um, and the, the pro-Nicene uh, legates actually were held prisoner. He had them imprisoned by the imperial guard, uh, and he wouldn't release them until they signed a decree stating that the son was like the father, right? That the son was homo eos with the father, like the father. Um, so if, if they couldn't agree with him on their own terms, he would force them to agree with him. Um, the Pope, by the way, wasn't there. The Pope was not present at Rimini because he wasn't even invited. The Bishop of Rome was not even invited to attend this, the Western Synod um, because, of course, the, the emperor did not want his influence uh, there. Uh, so he wasn't even involved in the proceedings. In the East, the Eastern Synod, uh, it was a relatively easy matter to get the, the majority of the bishops there to agree with the like the father formula, the homo eos uh, formula that the, the, that the emperor preferred, because most of the bishops in the East at this point were Arian. Uh, it just proves the point that theology in the church is not decided by um, majority vote. The church is not a democracy. Um, it's said that at one point... 80% of the bishops in the church were Arians, meaning 80% of the bishops in the church were heretics. Um, it's not a majority vote thing. Uh, the fact that only 20% of the church accepted the true apostolic faith at this time doesn't make the true faith any less true. And as we'll see in the end, history um, uh, shows that the, the true apostolic faith uh, does, does prevail. Um, so, in theory, now, at this point, the church was united under the Arian heresy. 
right? Because you have um, the, the, the the synod in the east uh, adopting the the homo eos formula that the son is like the father. You have the synod in the west, um, somewhat against their will, um, you know, but on paper at least adopting the homo eos formula. The emperor himself um, favors the homo eos formula, and so yay, everybody's Aryan now um, in theory on paper. Uh, right? Anyone who doesn't support that formula, the like the father formula, um, is subject to imperial persecution. A lot of bishops were sent into exile because they refused to get on board with this. Um, Athanasius himself, he was still in exile in the Egyptian desert, living with the monastics um, there. Um, it, but he wasn't completely out of the out of the debate. He wrote letters to all of the Egyptian bishops, encouraging them to stay faithful to the Nicene Creed, and as a result. All of the bishops in Egypt remained firmly in that orthodox camp. They refused to accept the homo eos formula that, uh, that the emperor was promoting. In 361, um, we have a new emperor now in the empire. Um, the new emperor is uh, Julian the Apostate. Uh, he's called the Apostate because he, uh, he rejected Christianity. Um, even though the emperors, uh, you know, for uh, ever since Constantine um, had been Christian, Julian rejected Christianity, and he wanted to bring back the old pagan ways, the old pagan Roman religions. And so he was interested in not just persecuting the church, but sowing as much strife as possible within the church. So he decided to restore all of the exiled bishops back to their sees, right? All of these bishops that had been put into exile because they refused to accept this compromise statement with the Arians. He said, you can all come home. Your exile is lifted. Restore them back to their sees. But remember, all of these, these, these dioceses had Arian bishops in place now. So by letting these, these pro-Nicene bishops return, these Orthodox bishops return, he was just stirring the pot. He was just fostering division within the church. Um, you know, most of the emperors before him, honestly, you know, they, were, they weren't so much concerned with the theology of the Arian heresy. They just wanted unity within the church. They just wanted one unified Christian religion. Um, but Julian didn't want that. He wanted a weakened, divided Christianity. So he let the bishops return. Um, in the year 362, Athanasius came back. He, he came to, back to Alexandria finally. Uh, but in his case, when he returned to Alexandria, because of his popularity and, and his, the great love that the people of Alexandria had for him, instead of creating a division when he returned to Alexandria, um, it just served to, to rally the faithful and really strengthen the church in Alexandria to have their exiled bishop, St. Athanasius, return to them. Um, so Julian changed his mind and says, no, you've got to go back into exile. So he sent Athanasius back into exile after just a couple of months. Um, Julian didn't reign for very long. He died in battle fighting the Persians in 363. Um, the emperor that came after him um, was was named Jovian, and he also didn't reign for very long. He died only eight months later. Um, after Jovian, um, Valentinian was selected as the next emperor um, by the military. The military was selecting the emperors because, remember, like I said, they held real political power in the Roman Empire. So the military selected a man named Valentinian to be the next emperor. 
But they requested that Valentinian go back to the two-emperor model, a Western emperor and an Eastern emperor. So Valentinian named his brother, Valens, to be emperor in the East, while Valentinian remained in the West and, and served as emperor in the West. And as it turned out, these two brothers had different opinions about religion. Valens, um, in the East, was Arian. And Valentinian, in the West, he um, agreed to the Nicene formula. He was, was Orthodox in his faith. Um, so in other words, Valens, in the East, was a homoios supporter, like in being. Christ is like in being with the Father. Or just, no, like the Father, not being. Homoios, Christ is like the Father, while Valentinian in the West was homo, um, homoios, right? The Nicene of one substance, consubstantial with the Father. So again, we have a divided empire with um, the Arian heresy prominent in the East and the Orthodox, you know, Apostolic uh, Christianity in the in the West. The difference this time, though, is that Arianism, by this point, um, had itself become very divided. Some Arians supported the Like the Father creed, homoios. Uh, homo um, other Arians supported the Like in Being creed, homoiousios. Um, and then there were still some that supported the unlike the father um, compromise position, right? The um, uh, the anamoyos. Um, so you had all three of these divisions within Arianism that were kind of combating each other. And so Valens, he was a homoios, uh, like the father supporter. And so he didn't just persecute those who supported the Nicene Creed, you know, homoios, but um, uh, he also persecuted those who supported the unlike the father creed and those who supported the like in being with the father creed. Um, so, you know, he, he kind of really cracked down not just on the pro-Nicene Christians, but also on the Arian Christians, too, if they didn't support his favored formula. Um, so, since the homo iusios uh, party, the lycan being party, uh, was already so close to the Nicene homo usios uh, formulation, uh, like I said, just one iota of difference, those two groups were actually able to unite um, under this, um, this persecution um, against the Emperor Valens and his um, homo eos party. Um, and, uh, and, and they actually agreed to uh, accept the, the Nicene formula, homoousios, homo um, in 364, but they were prevented from the emperor from actually meeting, getting together to ratify that agreement. So it was a temporary agreement, it didn't last for very long, um, and, and, and it kind of, they had further divisions over questions about the Holy Spirit, right? Well, what about the Holy Spirit? Is he of the same substance? Is he one in being with the Father and the Son? And so the debate kind of fell apart um, around that uh, question. Um, what turned the tide, though, was the introduction onto the scene of another great saint. So up until this point, St. Athanasius had been like the primary public defender, of um, of Christian um, orthodoxy, um, but now you have another young saint coming up, uh, and his name is, is Saint Basil of Caesarea, um, or he's better known in history as Saint Basil the Great. Um, he was a a brilliant preacher, and he was able to actually impress the Emperor Valens so much by his preaching that Valens 
was lenient with him and didn't attempt to force Basil to accept the homoios formula. He kind of gave Basil free reign to preach. And so this freedom gave Basil the opportunity to really strengthen and shore up the pro-Nicaea party in the eastern half of the empire. And wherever possible, he arranged for pro-Nicene bishops to ascend to vacant sees. Whenever um, you know uh, a vacancy opened up in a diocese, he made sure that it was a pro-Nicene bishop that was appointed there. Um, and he had two close friends that were working with him, uh, St. Gregory of Nyssa and St. Gregory Nazianzen. Uh, so St. Basil and, and these two St. Gregories, they are some of the most influential and prominent of the Eastern Church Fathers. Um, and they were, became known at this time as the Young Nicenes, right? Because they kind of represented a second wave of, um, of, of real support and vigor for uh, standing up and defending the Christian faith as formulated um, at the Council of Nicaea. So this group of very charismatic young bishops, they wanted unity within the church, but they wanted doctrinal unity within the church. They wanted a unity around a true statement of faith and true belief about the identity of Christ. Um, and they realized that to achieve that, the East and the West needed to overcome this issue of language. And they needed to have a creed that both of them could agree to. Um, and they also realized that we've got to talk about the Holy Spirit, right? You can't really resolve the issue of the relationship between the Father and the Son without also talking about, you know, how the Holy Spirit is related to, to each of them. Uh, because God is a trinity, right? He's not a dual God. He's a triune God. He's a trinity. So we have to talk about and, and define exactly how the Holy Spirit fits in here. So, so St. Basil proposed that, that this Greek word, usia, would would identify with being that's that's what we would use to describe the being right the the essence the existence the being of of god but the greek word hypostasis that's what we would use to talk about the personhood of god so that greek word hypostasis um, became our concept of of person um, and so he was able to, to make that distinction and, and clarify the usage of these two Greek terms that, that up until this point had been kind of used interchangeably. Um, and he used that to talk about the Trinity, to teach about the Trinity. And he said that, that God is one usia, he's one being, but he's three hypostases, three persons, one usia, one being. Um, and this is a radical development, not just for theology, but it's really a radical development in terms of, of philosophy and in terms of psychology, because we in kind of 21st century you know, America, we take for granted um, this idea of person. We just, person is a very ordinary, common English word, and we just take for granted that everyone knows what a person is and, and, and what that term entails. But, but before St. Basil gave us this language, there really wasn't a concept of personhood as an abstract idea. People 
couldn't really express what they meant about the Trinity or what we believed about the Trinity because we lacked the language to explain it, right? Um, how do you just make this distinction between a person and a being, right? Because in, in terms of human beings, every human being is an individual person. So there's not really that, there wasn't really that need on, on a human level to, to draw that distinction out. But, but in God, there is. And so St. Basil gave us this way of talking about God and expressing in very clear terms what we believe about the relationships of, of the three persons of, of God. Uh, right? so, so finally, we're able to express our faith that God is one in being, but three persons, um, thanks to, to St. Basil. Um, now, meanwhile, on the political scheme, things continue to change. Um, in the Western Empire, Valentinian died in the year 375, and his son, uh, uh, Gratian, uh, who was also loyal to the Nicene Creed, he succeeded him as emperor. Um, when Valens died in the East, a few years later, in 378, uh, Gratian uh, named a new Eastern emperor, and he named Theodosius, who had been a military leader from the West. And Theodosius also uh, supported and accepted the Nicene Creed. Um, and so now, for the first time ever in the, in the whole century since we've been <laughs> talking about this Arian heresy, for the first time, both the East and the West were ruled over by emperors that accepted the, the creed as taught at the Council of Nicaea. And in the year 397, these two emperors issued a decree that only the Catholic faith, right, the creed taught by Nicaea, only that would be sanctioned in the empire. And in the year 380, one year later, Theodosius in the East got even more specific, and he issued a decree to the people of Constantinople that everyone live the faith handed on by Christ through Peter to the Romans as professed by the Bishop of Rome and the Bishop of Alexandria, right, or Athanasius. So he stated in very certain terms that Arianism would not be tolerated within his empire. In the year 381, that same emperor, Theodosius, called a council of the church to meet at Constantinople, which was the capital in the east, and this would become the second true ecumenical council of the church. The bishops that were gathered there reaffirmed the Nicene Creed, accepting that the Son is, is homoousios, right? one in being, consubstantial, with the Father. Um, and in, in terms of the Holy Spirit, they added some language about the Holy Spirit to the Creed to clarify what we believe about the Holy Spirit. They didn't say that the Holy Spirit was homoousios, or one in being, with, with the Father. And that was as a compromise to, to those Arians that they, you know, the remnants there that still supported the like-in-being formulation. So they didn't insist that the Holy Spirit also had to be, you know, defined as homoousios, one in being with the Father. But they did add the phrase, you know, the Nicene Creed had, had said, we believe in the Holy Spirit, period. They added to that, we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father. With the Father and the Son, he is worshipped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets. Now, you may have noticed I said that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father. The phrase, and the Son, 
right, or filioque in Latin, that would be added later on, uh, and that would cause a, a whole uh, different debate and a different controversy um, between the East and the Western Church. Um, but as it is at, at Constantinople, the statement that they added um, does make, even though it doesn't say homoousio, so he's one in being with the Father, it does make very definite claims about the Holy Spirit. It gives him the title of Lord, and it says that he is to be worshipped and, 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 and glorified, not just as the Father and the Son, right? Um, not, he, he's to be worshipped and glorified um, as the Father and Son, excuse me. Um, and uh, I just got thrown for a minute because I realized that, you know, we, it, it's adored and glorified. Now I thought something was, was wrong there. I went back into the old pre-2011 translation of the Creed. But same thing, right? He's adored and he's glorified uh, just as the Father and the Son uh, are, uh, which means very clearly that he's God because we would not adore him or worship him um, uh, if he were not God. We would not address him as Lord if he were not God. So even though they didn't use that term homoousios for the Holy Spirit, uh, the bishops present at this council, including the, the young Nicenes, right, Basil and, and Gregory of Nyssa and Gregory of, of Nazianzen, um, they were able to, to very definitively establish the equality of the Holy Spirit with the Father and the Son in the Godhead. So by the time this council closes, Arianism is, is effectively dead. Um, it's not gone uh, by any means. Um, the church would continue to, to combat Arianism in a very direct way and, until really the ninth century, largely because, as I said earlier, a lot of the, the more remote parts of Europe had been converted by missionaries that were teaching an Arian version of Christianity. And so there was a lot of damage uh, in the border territories of, of the empire that would have to be undone. Um, those those people that had um, accepted the Christian faith as taught by these Aryan missionaries, they would have to be recatechized um, to to accept um, you know the the faith as expressed by the Nicene uh, formula or or what really we ought to call the Niceno Constantinopolitan Creed um, because it, the version that we have was was really formulated here at the Council of Constantinople, but. Nobody wants to say the, the Niceno-Constantinopolitan Creed, so we just say Nicene Creed for short. Um, so in those kind of missionary territories, they would have to be re-catechized to accept the, the Nicene Creed. But the intellectual arguments for Arianism were, were, were definitively rejected. Uh, the political force that had favored Arianism, that was no longer present. Um, and so that effectively puts an end to the Arian heresy, even though the idea itself would linger on. And, and as I said, there's probably many Christians today that, that have this erroneous notion about Christ as being the greatest of all of God's creatures, but somehow less than God himself. Um, so from this initial question, this initial debate that arose in the early 4th century in the church about the, the nature of Christ's relationship with God the Father, um, we can kind of see the following. Uh, first point, um, theological issues get really complex and messy when political and military powers get involved with them. Um, second point, um, this heresy, the Arian heresy, really kind of gave us a blueprint for, or, or I should say the church's response to this Arian heresy, gives us the blueprint for how um, ecumenical councils operate, um, and, and uh, how ecumenical councils can really serve as a, um, as a powerful force within the church for 
definitively formulating um, these matters of faith uh, that, that the church as a whole um, needs to accept. Um, they're, they're ecumenical, they're universal councils, and um, uh, so we first see them kind of put into action uh, here in response to the Arian heresy. Um, but the lasting, um, the real lasting um, uh, uh, gift that has come out of this period in the church is the, the formulation of the Nicene Creed, or as I said, the Niceno-Constantinopolitan Creed. Um, this, this very revered statement of faith that still forms part of our liturgy and part of our prayer life today that expresses beautifully and, and, uh, and definitively the equality, not just of the Father and the Son, um, which is what the Arian debate was originally about, but also of the Holy Spirit. And so it, it giving us this, um, this formulation of our faith in the Trinity that, uh, that we still believe and we still go back to and time and time again to, to teach and to clarify and come to a deeper understanding of our own, of our own faith. So that's it for Arianism. Uh, that's it today. We'll, we'll sign off here. Um, tune in next week. We will be talking about Pelagianism, um, which is named after a, a British monk uh, named Pelagius, who is kind of a proponent for moral uprightness. Um, but he did it by denying original sin, um, which you don't want to go around doing. Um, he was... Um, uh, he was uh, uh, not combated, but debated um, by uh, by Saint uh, Saint Augustine of Hippo, and so we'll get to meet one of the great uh, theological minds of the early church next week too. So tune in next week for the next episode on Pelagianism. I hope you enjoyed this episode on Arianism, um, the first major Christological uh, heresy, and uh, I hope you have a wonderful week. And uh, God bless. <music>